Praise the Lord. All right, but let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to continue this morning looking at this series that we've been doing, going through the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> and remembering that our overarching theme as we look at this systematically, this book, and go through it, is the um, uh, acronym, I guess, uh, or whatever, Sit, Walk and Stand. Sit, Walk and Stand, which captures the, in essence, that which is contained within the book or the epistle itself and the truths that it contains and it gives us something to grasp and understand and apply as it relates to the Word of God. And so we've been looking at the issue of sitting, but now we're going to turn our attention and move forward to that which is to what it means to walk as a Christian. Now this is important because um, as we said, the first three or six chapters, the first three are doctrinal in the fact that they're dealing with the spiritual content and doctrines of, of the Christian faith and the gospel itself and, and our position that is in Christ Jesus. And as I've said before, it is imperative that we learn to sit in Christ because we are seated in heavenly places. And so before we even consider to walk, it is important that we first understand our position and our place in Christ Jesus and we are sitting in Christ because he has done everything in terms of our salvation. It is finished. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who we turn away from sin and in doing so we are seated in heavenly places. We are with Christ Jesus and uh, he has completed it all for us uh, and we receive the gift of salvation. So that's the essence what's behind that. But we want to consider the walk. And I cannot overemphasize enough this morning as we look at this in these chapters, the issue of the Christian life and as it relates to us in walking in Christ. It is uh, filled, this, uh, this epistle, these next few chapters again are jam-packed with instructions and exhortations on how to live the Christian life, how to walk the walk, amen? Not just talk the talk, as they say, but to walk the walk. And, um, and this is something that we have to uh, uh, learn uh, and understand as it relates to the Christian life. But like any child, we have to learn to walk. When we become Christians, we're babes in Christ. We're just feeding on the pure milk of God's word. We're just uh, weaned on him, amen, seated in heavenly places and in bathing in his love and grace and thanking God for our justification and uh, our having been set free from sin and the inheritance that we have. But the next phase is now learning to walk. And so the walk is what the Christian life actually is. And isn't it interesting that it is compared to a walk? In, uh, in this epistle alone, we're going to find various references to walking, walk, walk, walk. And it really typifies what uh, uh, is required of us as a Christian. This Christian life is compared to a walk, the Christian walk, or it's compared to a marathon. There's many analogies, but the walk is something that uh, uh, we find here in Scripture. And so when we think of that, uh, the thoughts that come to our mind is obviously, uh, we know uh, we're on a path that has a destination, and that uh, you know, if we're walking, then we have to progress. We're progressing. There's movement. 
because we're walking. We're not just sitting, we're not just standing, uh, uh, but we are now walking and to walk the Christian life, in the Christian life. It also speaks of us in aspects of obedience and the effort that is required from us, from our part and the endurance and perseverance that must be made manifest as we continue to walk as we, as we ought to. And so it's in light of this that Paul shifts his attention from the doctrine to the practical aspects of the Christian faith and what it means to be spiritual in its practical applications. Because thank God for the blood, thank God for the inheritance, thank God for his love, thank God for his power. These are the things that Paul has been speaking about uh, in, in, this, uh, in the previous chapter and uh, chapters, but now he's talking about the walk and he has laid that foundation, the foundation of Christ. But you see, uh, the Christian life goes beyond that uh, because now that Christ is the foundation and Christ is laid, now we must be careful how we build upon that uh, and how we progress upon that. And so Christ is the foundation but also he is the end in the sense that the whole Bible teaches us that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Paul even speaks to the Galatians and he says, of whom I labour again until Christ is formed in you. In actual fact, in this chapter, chapter 4 of Ephesians, we'll find the phrase, unto full stature. And these are all interchangeable in the sense that they are teaching us uh, this work that is going on inside of us uh, in which now Christ being in us, uh, Christ is the foundation, now Christ is to be formed and uh, to the extent that Paul would say, for me to live is Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. And so we have an understanding here of, uh, uh, of this aspect of the Christian life and this is all expressed and incorporated in our walk, the way we walk. And so, let's look at some of the practical instructions that we will discover and we'll start by reading chapter 4 verse 1 through to verse 6 only um, and we'll break it up and we'll focus, make that our focus this morning. Paul writes and he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So here we have Paul, he's shifting now his focus and he's turning his attention as he writes this epistle on now giving them the instructions or applications of the doctrines and spiritual truths that he has just taught them and been revealing to them. And it is imperative that, he, that they capture and understand the practical application of these truths. Now what's interesting is Paul says in verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Now isn't it interesting because in chapter 3 verse 1, 
What did he say? For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ. Now on two instances he has made this reference to the fact that he is a prisoner of God. In other words, uh, uh, as we established, he's saying that I am a slave to God. I am bound by, uh, to God for God and for his purposes and so he is, he's using this expression to uh, give the Ephesians an understanding of that aspect. But what's interesting this morning is that Paul is using this phrase in a different context. In chapter 3, he's using that I am a prisoner unto Christ and this relates to the proclamation and preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to the Gentiles. He is the the apostle to the Gentiles. And so this is the emphasis. He's bound and ordained by God for this very purpose. But now in chapter 4, he makes the same reference but in a different context. Because not only is Paul responsible to preach the gospel to them, but he's now responsible to, as he would say to the Galatians, whom I labour again until Christ is formed in you, that he would teach them how to live the Christian life that he would show them what is required of them, what God expects of them, how to go about and live a life that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And so this is important, amen, in light of the Christian life. And Paul says, I am bound, I'm a prisoner, not only to preach the gospel to you, but to show you how the gospel practically is to look in your life and how you are to walk, he uses the phrase, to walk worthy of the Lord. And, he, and this sets the tone and, uh, for what he proceeds to write in the following chapters uh, and gives them constant instruction and exhortation in rela- relating to the Christian life or in this instance the Christian walk. And so this is important. I'm a prisoner, of the, I'm bound for this. But listen carefully. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the law, Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Note here the word beseech. Because Paul is understanding the, the, the responsibility that he has before God and also the authority that he has before God. Now he is an apostle. He understands that he has been given a privileged responsibility and position in the church and he has authority, he has responsibility, but he's very careful not to overstep and abuse that authority that he has. So he's not lording it over them. It's, a, you know, it's in his right to tell them what they have to do, so to speak, but he's very careful in the way in which he does it. So he says, I beseech you therefore, as he would use that phrase back in Romans 12 again, after spending all those chapters setting forth the doctrine of, of the gospel, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren. And that word beseech is he says, I am urging you, I am begging you, I am exhorting you, I am appealing to you in light of all of these things, these glorious truths that you would respond in this manner, that you would do this. And so that's the manner in which Paul is approaching this and it's important to point that out so that we can understand that he's calling them to, alongside him, beseech you. 
And he says, what's it, uh, what's it towards? He says, it's to, to live a life that he's, uh, he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You see, the, whole, the scriptures speak in many instances in, in, in relating to the walking worthy before God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, you see this expression again. Let me read it to you, verse 9 through to 12, Colossians. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Kind of overtones of what we've been looking at in Ephesians, right? And that you may, verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now this again has overtones and similarities of what Paul has been outlining to the Ephesians. And uh, in, in his mind he has a fixed understanding and he uses the expression in, in, in a number of uh, epistles uh, which he says that she would walk worthy before the Lord, fully pleasing him. And again, to, the motivation to walk worthy before God has to be based in a desire and a love that emanates from our lives that says, you know what the motivation of my life is? Is I want to fully please God. Jesus said, it is a delight to do your will. It is my pleasure to please Him. I always do those things that please Him. See, the motivation of walking the, the walk and walking in a manner that is worthy is not based upon some set of rules and regulations because the motivation is all wrong. God wants your heart. And out of that, out of your love for Him being the motivation and the desire to fully please Him, then that becomes the grounds on which we set ourselves to walk worthy before the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul would say again, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. As a father exhorts his own, or, or as a father uh, uh, exhorts or charges his own children. See, this is, this is the heart of Paul. As a father does his own children. You know, it's, 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 it's not until you're a parent that you understand this, this connection between ch children and... Uh, uh, well, that's not true, actually. Um, the, it is possible for the Lord to show us this. But the point being is, is that there's a dynamic that we do learn when we are parents and we have children and we are charging them, we are instructing them. Our desire is to, uh, that they would walk worthy before God, fully pleasing Him. You see, the walk carries the concept of how to live in the Greek. It's, it's, it's to live the Christian life. And so, you know, the whole emphasis of walking worthy before God tells us that we can walk in a manner that is unworthy. Amen? The word worthy means appropriate, appropriately. 
And so, again, it suggests that there are things that are appropriate and there are things that are inappropriate. Or dare I say, there are things that are right, there are things that are wrong, there are things that are acceptable, there are things that are unacceptable in the Christian life. And we have to, we have to assess these things, we have to examine these things and, and our motivation, our endeavour is to walk worthy in a manner that is pleasing, in a manner that is acceptable, in a manner that is appropriate. And that is what the scriptures referring to. You see, this next few chapters will involve a whole emphasis of Paul exhorting us to walk worthy before God. And they deal with what we call in the Christian life sanctification. You see, chapters 1 to 3, in a sense, deal with our justification before God. But now we're dealing with the issue of sanctification or progressive sanctification in relation to the Christian life. And now, uh, as we are saved and we are in Christ, and now we must learn to walk as God would have us to walk and live as God would have us to live. And this issue of sanctification finds its expression in words like in um, um, uh, Hebrews where we would pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one can see the Lord. And so it's this pursuit, it's this desire, it's this endeavour in the Christian life that must characterise us. Amen. Holiness. Holiness. And I understand that holiness is positional first and foremost, but holiness is still practical and we can't disconnect the two. But let me say this, our holiness is not something that is fundamentally outward. Holiness is first and foremost something that is internal. Like, and I still, to this day, love the, um, the definition that I once read by Sidlow Baxter when he said, holiness is best defined as likeness unto Christ or likeness unto God. See, it's the formation of Christ. It's Christ in us. And so all of a sudden uh, we begin to live as he lives and walk as his walk. His life begins to manifest in and through our lives uh, and it is characterised by holiness. So we don't touch what is unclean and we begin to uh, do things that are pleasing in his sight. You know, it's the old adage and I hate to use it, but hey, what would Jesus do, I guess? You know what I mean? But that, in a sense, is, 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 is how we're thinking. It's the formation of Christ. Holiness is not the imitation of Christ. You know, there's that book out there, it's called The Imitation of Christ. We are not out to imitate Christ. We are out to live as, have Christ formed in us. We, for me to live is Christ. And so it's this understanding of the formation of Christ in us that characterises us and this is the issue of holiness. And then it will have its outward expressions because there are just things that you won't do, you won't participate in, you cannot uh, uh, and will not do before the Lord and so forth. <coughs> and what's interesting is Paul the Apostle is not just someone that instructs people on what to do, he, he was a, an example of the life to, uh, that needs to be lived. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Or, he said he's, or in other words, he says, follow my, in my footsteps. Follow my footsteps, walk like me. That's what Paul say. He says, though you have 10,000 instructors, you don't have many fathers. And there's so many people that want to tell us how to do it. Amen? Here we are right now. 
But we, just, we don't need 10,000 instructors in the Christian life. What we need is we need fathers, or we need people, amen, that, in a sense that will take us under our wing, that will show us what it means to follow Jesus and how to walk the walk. And then as Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ in the sense that, uh, uh, that we are, uh, are living for and obedient to uh, and fully committed to Christ himself. So let's look a little bit further this morning at what is written here in our text because the first exhortation in chapter 4 is that we would walk in unity. This is what Paul's dealing with in these six verses, that we would walk in unity. This is his first instruction of how to walk worthy before God is to walk in unity. Now this is important for us. How do we walk in unity? Well, how do we walk worthy? Now look at verse 2, because Paul, be, uh, how do we walk worthy of the calling with which we were called? That's what is the motivation, that's what's required. Well, it starts in verse 2 when Paul would say, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Ooh. <laughs> now just stop and think about that for a moment because that, is really, that, that, that really hits us hard. With all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And this issue of lowliness means an humiliation of mind. You know, it's the opposite, really, of the world, which is what we call high-mindedness, loftiness of mind that we see all around us, that people are, uh, are attaining to and all the rest of it, but yet the Bible calls us to the extreme opposite, to walk in a lowliness of mind, in a humiliation of mind. And so people boast in their, uh, the world boasts in its intellectual capacities and, and uh, all the rest that, is, uh, that it, it goes on and on and on and we glorify these things uh, in, uh, you know, in life and in, in universities and in achievements and all the rest of it. But God says uh, lowliness of mind is what is required of us. With all gentleness and long-suffering, so these are things that we have to learn because really they're contrary to, uh, to our nature for the most part in which we, uh, we don't walk as we ought to walk in terms of lowliness of mind and gentleness or meekness is the word here. And this is a challenge because uh, uh, each of us really struggles uh, and no doubt we all fall short. But look at what it says, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. See, love suffers long. And so in to walk in unity this morning, then we're going to have to have these attributes uh, uh, embedded and developed uh, and formed in our very character because otherwise we will fall short and we can all acknowledge that we have failed in this area uh, without Christ. I mean, sorry, um, even in Christ, but just um, uh, in general in the body. So... <coughs> singing along. <laughs> I thought there was a tune from a few people there. Uh, praise the Lord. I th- uh, brother, it's just your first time here, right? Because I think in there there's a room and it has a, um, a thing, a speaker. But, so let's get back to this. In, in verse 2 we're talking about a lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering and bearing with one another. 
in love. In love. See, this is a challenge. But these are the characteristics that we must possess, that we must have. And let's be honest, because it's hard to walk in unity and it's hard to live in this manner because, let's be honest, people frustrate us. People can irritate us. It's all right, I was looking for some honesty. <laughs> I know it doesn't happen to anyone. You're just so full of God and love and, and that. But let's be honest, you know, people can be frustrated. You know, the church is an interesting place. Because in the world, we just have a, there's an intolerance, right? In the world, if you don't like somebody or something, you just easily disconnect, disassociate, and in your high-mindedness, you move on. But in the church, you're called to a lowliness of mind, humiliation of mind, and not only that, you're called to, to be gentle, and you're called to suffer long, and you're called to bear with everyone in love. See, this is, this is the challenge, To walk this way, it goes against the grain of our flesh and our nature and that's why uh, it's it's about having Christ uh, formed in us. But let's be honest, the church is like a family. This word bearing uh, with one another means that I have to put up. I have to put up with you, you have to put up with me. And there are some people that really get under my skin. Uh, There's people that get under your skin. There are just people, it's like, because of who we are, there's specific people that will just rub us up the wrong way. Are you with me? And yet, we can get angry and frustrated and we can criticise and we can say certain things and, and we've all done it, but you see, the problem is not the other person. The problem now ultimately comes back to us because something gets set off in us and we have to process these things and work through them. And so we have to bear with one another in love. And really the way I've learned this lesson in life, because I've failed many a times as well, is I've, I've, I've learned how gracious God is with me. How, how much he loves me. How much he has persevered with me. Because I tell you what, when I don't, and he has been merciful, I failed him and I've messed up and he still gives me love, still gives me mercy. And as David said, your gentleness has made me great. Because he could have just zapped me. He could have just said, enough's enough with this God. Had enough of him. You, you just don't understand. You know what I'm saying? And so when, when I, when I, the more I receive of God's love, the more I receive of God's grace, the more I receive of God's mercy in my life, it gives me a greater capacity to extend that to others. That's how it works. And so all of a sudden in the church, through this, we are learning to walk in unity by esteeming others better than ourselves, by forbearing and bearing uh, those that we would not necessarily like. You know, I, what liberated me once was the, I, one, person, one brother said to me many years ago, he said, listen Gary, we're not called to like everyone. We're called to love everyone. Because they're just things I don't like. But that doesn't give me justification not to love. I have to love. I have to learn to d- demonstrate those things. And so this is what forms the basis of unity amongst diversity, amongst the people of God in a church. And, it, and it is, it, this is important. 
like I said, the world just dismisses these things. I've had enough of you, you know, catch you later. Well, sorry, you have to come back to church and you're going to have to look that brother or sister in the eye and you're going to have to say, God bless you, love you, amen. And you have to be sincere, not feign it, because it's so easy to put on the Christian smile, the Christian walk, you know, <laughs> let's be honest, church, come on. And this is what Paul's telling us we mustn't do. We must be characterised by these things because in verse 3 he goes further and he would say to us, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit. See, this is what we need to do. If we're, we're to walk worthy before God and to walk in unity, we have to endeavour to... <coughs> um, uh, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, endeavour, because there's a part that we all have to play. It's so easy just to disconnect. It's so easy just to, you know, just to say, oh well, you know, wipe our hands clean. But there's a responsibility that is still put into our hands and we must endeavour to keep the unity of the Spirit. Does that mean it's, all, uh, uh, it's always going to be there? Well, sometimes it's not, but we must endeavour towards that. We must continue to pursue it. See this in Romans 12:18. It says, "If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as depends upon me, I've got to endeavour. I've got to walk in this way. I've got to be characterised in this manner: lowliness of mind, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love." So. <coughs> It's interesting as well because this is, we find this word the bond of peace. This word bond literally in the Greek means um, to a, a joint tie. Or in other words, um, it's a, it means a ligament or it's a uniting principle. So we must be united, we must be connected, we must be genuinely linked to one another. And so uh, we, we must endeavour to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And this is a challenge, let's be honest. But you see, the whole reason for this and the whole issue re revolves around uh, a very interesting concept that Paul introduces in the next verse because the truth is, the reason why we have to remain connected the reason why the, the, the unity or oneness of the Spirit must be there, the bond must remain, is because the fact is, is this, we are all one in Christ. It's the issue of oneness that Paul then makes an emphasis of in the next verse to show us the reason why we must do this because we're dealing with the fact that we are one body. Listen to in verse 4. There is one body. There is one Spirit and you were called in one hope of your calling. And so there is a unity to us. Uh, we are connected and we were born into Christ. The Bible tells us that we were baptised into Christ. The moment we became born again, we were baptised into Christ. We are part of the body of Christ. We are one. One hope, amen? And that hope is Christ. And so we are all built on the same foundation. We are all interconnected into the body. We are brethren. We are all members of the same household. And it's this issue of oneness that lays the foundation of unity that must be manifest amongst us. 
You see, the issue of oneness is first doctrinal, then it is practical, and so this is why Paul would say to us in verse 5, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one, one, one. And that oneness that characterises us positionally in Christ, who God is one, we are one in him, now must be endeavoured to be maintained practically amongst the body of the believers and of the church. And this is the way we must endeavour towards this end because no use us all talking about the glories and the wonders of the gospel and the doctrines of Christ as in the previous chapters and yet we come to church and we can't stand each other, hate each other, you know, and like, oh, you know, what joy is that going to bring? What blessing will that provide? None. So it's this issue of oneness that is the basis of our unity and Paul says we must walk in it. You see, the church is a corporate body that's made up of individual believers and this is what God is working towards amongst us. You know, as I conclude, the concept of oneness is primary in the, in the mind of God. So this is why, as Paul has spoken about walking worthy, his first thought is unity of the Spirit, unity of the bond of peace amongst the people of God. Why? Because oneness, whom God is, that's what is one, Lord, one God, one Lord, one Father, one faith, one baptism, it's all one. We're one body. And this is exactly the unity that God wants amongst his people. And that's why Jesus in the Gospel of John, in what we have in John 17, we have the Lord's Prayer. And you know, the Lord's Prayer is not Matthew chapter 6. He, the, the Lord prayed uh, to teach them a model for prayer, not a prayer that they would pray repetitiously. But that's not even the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17. And listen to what he did pray for in John, John's Gospel, chapter 17. Let's go to verse 20. Jesus is praying and he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory with which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and, that you have, and, that have, and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus is praying for oneness. For God is one. Jesus is saying, God, we are one. And so what is, the gospel, what is the hope of the gospel of Christ? Christ in you. And so now all of a sudden, just in the same manner that Christ and God is a oneness there, we are now partakers of that oneness and all of us individually, which make up the church corporately, locally and universally, we are all one. And that is why we must endeavour to keep the spirit of unity and the bond of, of peace amongst us because when these things are broken, then this is, uh, uh, this, that disunity, that dysfunction is not, uh, does not please God. 
Jesus would say again in, uh, um, in John 13, verse 34, let me read it to you. He, sa- um, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And this is this love that transcends uh, um, all the other things that want to break it down. You know, all of our, uh, our little idiosyncrasies and all of our little irritations and all the things that make up who we are and how we rub up against others and all the rest of it, God would say that we would learn to love as Christ has loved us, to love one another and that by this all will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. Oneness, unity, the unity of the Spirit. And this is why Paul would say you must walk worthy before the Lord because this is what we are called to and it is there that the blessing of God abides because if a church cannot walk in unity and be in unity of spirit and keep the bond of peace then it has failed, true? And that's why again we have as I conclude in Psalm 133 there's just a, a, a famous scripture there that talks about unity and I'm sure we're all familiar with it but let me just read it as I conclude Psalm 133. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For it is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like dew, the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And so the blessing of God abides upon those that endeavour to keep the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. I know that there are times where these things, you know, uh, it doesn't occur for whatever reasons, but as much as depends on us, it's about us this morning, not the next person. Not the other person who you says has got the problem. Sometimes the other you can be right, but still be wrong in the way in which we're reacting and are, and are processing these things, because we feel justified in our actions and so forth. But we have to understand it from this perspective. And so I pray that we would walk in unity, because this is Paul's first exhortation to us in order to walk worthy before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning. My God, for your word that has come to us, I pray, God, as we would consider uh, that which relates to the Christian walk, that you would, Lord, give us uh, not only an understanding, but help us to apply these things into our lives. That we, Lord, would uh, walk worthy of the calling in which we were called, Lord. That we would make it our desire to fully please you in all things and help us, God, to walk in unity, keep the unity of spirit and the bond of peace amongst the brethren and continue to teach us to love one another. For this is what you do, Lord. Your word tells us in the, in the epistle, First um, Thessalonians 1.9, I think it is, where you teach us to love one another. And God, continue to help us to walk worthy before you by fulfilling this instruction, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.